Uh, well, the reality when we're in a when we're in a spiritual community, moving through lots of aspects of life with one another. One week where you know young people are getting baptized and babies are getting dedicated, then in other weeks, um, unfortunate events happen and, and tragedy strikes. And I, I have permission to talk about uh, one that's happened in our community. So there's a, a a dear friend of our community, a member of our community who's been around for. 20 years, over 20 years, her name is Val Pack, and uh, she passed away this week from a stroke, uh, and there was, there was some other complications leading up to that, but um, it, yeah, she concluded her life with a stroke, and um, her daughter reached out to some of the staff at New Heights and gave us an update. So I, I wanted to let you guys in on that, that there's some folks, you know, wearing that, that, that today, and um, She's also just a, a dear friend of our community, a dear member of our community who we've had lots of history with. So, why don't I thank God for Val Pack? And I know that there's more more going on in our community that that um, I don't I don't have the permission to mention here, but um, I think I think we can take on that posture and prayer of grieving and thanking God for Val and her life. So, uh, Jesus, we we know your your disposition. It's death, and that it's you. You you're a realistic person, and uh, you know that it comes, but you you don't like it. There's an aspect of it that's offensive, that's not intended. And we think of Val, and we we sit in that sadness that she's lost, but we also thank you for uh, who she was and the impact that she's had on this community. And what just leaps to mind is her generosity with her house, and. Uh, that big property that she had and how she arrived every week with a smile. So we, we deeply thank you for the way that you sustained her for 80, 82 years and uh, we, we remember her moving forward. In your name, Jesus. Amen. Okay, well, thank you. Thanks, guys. Like I said, there's, there's high moments and there's low moments and the reality of being a spiritual community is that we move through all of it. So to transition, which how in the world do you transition out of that? We're in a, a series right now, and it's, it's on prayer. So it's pretty fitting that we, that we put it together and name it like that. And uh, we're in this, it's a kind of a bigger series on prayer, and we're heading into a week where it's going to be, there's going to be one, one day next week where we're doing this exercise that I don't know if we've ever done before, and it's like a 24-hour prayer exercise where different members of our community are taking an hour slot and they're focusing their thoughts and prayers on our community kind of being with God intentionally for an hour uh, and then we're going to move through those 24 hours and that's in con connection to what we're also doing next week what Jaden was saying which is this dream session we thought a perfect way to lead into the dream session where people are going to be pitching ideas and we're going to be sharing what's uh, what our community's been discerning together is this time of, of a lot of prayer, really attuning our ears to what God is saying. So I want to uh, kick off this talk by uh, considering the U.S. in the 1960s, as you do. Uh, it's, a, it's an era of uh, civil rights movements, of political activism, of protests, of war, and it was this, this all-around tumultuous setting. Now, I'd love if together, for a moment, we could bring to mind some of the events that you know happened in the 1960s in the U.S. I'm not sure about all the, the 
European kind of setting in the 60s, but I'm sure there was something going on. And we have some images that we can be kind of circulating. So I would love if you if you would kind of be focusing up there, but also kind of be like trying to think of one in your head of something that happened in the 1960s. And we have I know there's some historian buffs in the room. Kennedy assassination. Kennedy assassination. Yeah, I think so. Oh, it was up there. Okay. Yeah, the atomic age. Any others? Civil rights. Civil rights, yeah. Vietnam. Vietnam. <laughs> yeah. That was it. That was was he shot in the sixties too? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I think it was sixty-eight. Oh, David's got some. Oh, David. A Canadian civil rights by Viola Davis. Yeah. Yeah. Like I was saying, there's history buffs that know <laughs> So I want to read oh, off this more. It was called Woodstock. Woodstock, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of like, the hippie movement, the sexual revolution. Uh, there's more. There's more there. Rock. What's that? Robert. <laughs> I, I don't even know if I heard you right. <laughs> I actually, I actually did not read. Ah, burning up the bra. Okay. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> I, I actually looked up women, women's liberation on Google, and the images that came up was like, ah, you show all of this. <laughs> that was the most appropriate one I could show. Okay, now we are fully immersed in the 1960s, right on. So I want to read uh, this small uh, story that happened in the kind of the mid-60s. It happened in California, in West Hollywood, and this riot happened. And I want to read you a little story about the riot and kind of lift off from there. So this is about a two-minute reading, so hang in there. The Sunset Strip was Hollywood's playground where the entertainment industry came. The strip's shine dimmed a bit. Yes, thank you, Dan, for circulating this. The strip's shine dimmed a bit in the 1950s as people stayed in, drawn less to the city because the city streets and more to the at-home entertainment provided by the television. Ah, but the 1960s. The rough edges that remained on Sunset Boulevard were the perfect setting for a new music scene. This is West Hollywood, Sunset Boulevard, the street there. Just a real cultural, a real cultural hub. Rock was the sound of the strip, and the, this new crowd came with new rules. And the, the Roxy was on this strip. That was one, one, I think it's like a club that I recognize in the West. Because the strip was once again the place to be, young people gathered there. Part of the effort to bring back some of the old magic included a tiered licensing system that allowed 18 to 21 year olds inside clubs where alcohol was served while creating special liquorless music venues for younger 15 to 18 year olds. Historian Mike Davis writes, this system instituted in 1965 increased the number of teenagers hanging out on the strip and the number of complaints from business owners. The solution was a curfew. How do you guys think that went? <laughs> Anyone under 18 couldn't loiter in the neighborhood past 10 p.m. What this meant for teenagers was that there was 
Cops were patrolling the strip, keeping their eyes open for primarily the long-haired kids with beads, granny glasses, and tie-dyed shirts. Davis writes, once caught, the kids would endure nothing from in anything from insults to physical violence before being hauled off to an area precinct. The teens, fed up by the nightly harassment, organized a city of protests beginning in the fall of 1966. These protests led to clashes between protesters and police beginning in late six, 1966 and continuing sporadically until the fall of 68, one of the biggest protests having 3,000 people. So after that riot, which, how, raise your hand if you knew about that riot. I, I'm, it's all, I'm just learning about it. Dennis, okay. Uh, so there was a, a person in that riot, and he was an artist, he's this young man, and he went home and he wrote this song when those were emotions were fresh, were fresh. And this song was published in 66, or no, sorry, it was published in 67, but then it got national attention in 68. And I want to play it for you guys. And I'm, I'm curious if, or how many of you will all recognize it. So, give me a second. Let's just listen to like 60 seconds. <laughs> Something happened in here. That went so long. civil rights movements, mainly the war, what was happening in California, 
it, caught, it captured all these aspects of what was going on in culture at the time. And when people play that song, it's like what, what comes to mind when we play that song? We start thinking of faces in those photos. We start thinking of this timeline and this energy in the era. And you know what we learned about in history class? And it still hasn't really escaped pop culture. Like when we think of where that where I would have access to that song, you got any idea? So I'm born in '96. What would be kind of my pop culture reference for this song? Oops, I did it again. <laughs> that's that's sorry. That's not a Bible question or something. That's like uh, Forrest Gump. This song is in Forrest Gump, which I like love and, and cherish that. So our connection uh, this morning is that Jesus understood himself to be starting a movement. And when, he, when his followers asked him, Lord, how, how do we pray? Jesus did something interesting. And he gave them a poem. And can you guess what the poem was? The poem we're all familiar with. Lord's Prayer. Yeah, the, Lord, the Lord's, prayer. Lord's Prayer. And as one scholar put it, he said it was this prayer that breathed fresh air life into the movement of Jesus. Just like this song captured that 1960s, uh, what was going on in the culture in the 1960s. However, unfortunately, this poem, just kind of since, it, since it's been around, it's kind of lost the energy or the vitality that Jesus intended it to have in the life of his followers. And instead, it's become a little bit unfamiliar, or it's just said and spoken in liturgical settings. And we've lost that original vitality or energy that Jesus meant to have in that prayer. So the claim I'm attempting to make this morning is that the Lord's Prayer was Jesus' short, memorable, personal prayer that grounded his mind in all the values and truths and claims that was, that was a part of this movement that he was starting. And when his followers asked, Jesus, how do we pray? It's like, what, what else could he give them other than this prayer, this poem that he was praying to himself that grounded him in the reality of his movement, the values of it, the vision of it. So we are engaging with this topic as a primer for this 24-hour prayer activity. It's connected to the life plan, and we're just saying all these things over. But when I was tasked to tell this, or do like a, a sermon or a, a talk on prayer 101 for our community, I was thinking like, Oh man, there's a lot of folks in our community that are far well, far more well-versed in prayer than I am, and everyone's kind of acquainted with prayer. Where in the world do I, do I start on this one? Prayer 101. And I spent five hours just, just ruminating on, like, what's my access point? How do I relate to, like, the young and, and, and the older generation? And, and I had trouble, and then it dawned on me. Prayer, Jesus had his own teaching on prayer 101, and we find two accounts of it, and it's the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6 first, and then again in, in, Matthew, in Matthew 11. And I just want to read this first part of, sorry, Matthew 6 and Luke 11. So I want to read this first part, uh, which I love is the preamble to the Lord's Prayer. Oh, we got it there. I'm going to read it from here, and you guys can So, and when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they've received their reward in full. Oh, that is like a 
that, that is a, you know, he's speaking some, dropping some wisdom bombs, speaking some truth there. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they'll be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them. It's just, it's just being direct, not pulling any punches. Don't be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask it. That is a sobering, honest invitation to prayer. So I want to just talk a little bit about, and this is kind of our academic dive into this passage. I want to um, just move through this passage for like the next five minutes, and I'll make some brief comments about its literary structure, which hopefully is not, it's not as boring as that sounds. Um, and then just a few more comments. So it's a short introduction. If we could go to the next slide, if you don't mind. It's this really short introduction, and it's it says, it's addressing who this prayer is to. It's, it's to our Father in heaven. And then it, it goes into these three next segments, and there's three addresses to the Father, and it uses this word, your, your. So it's your name, your kingdom, your will, and it, the prayer begins by focusing not on the, the, the person who's praying, but instead it's bringing to mind the person who they're praying to. So that's the intro of the first section. Then it has this shift where there's three more petitions for the community of disciples. We're going to use the, the shift from your to us. So it's give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we will have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from the evil one. So there is this really interesting point here and it seems that Jesus structured this prayer as we see the three yours and the three us's, he structured this prayer after what he called his two greatest commandments. Which, which, which were those two greatest commandments? You're going to the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Yeah. First and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. Yeah, so love the Lord your God with all your Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That, that fits in. It's like those first three yours. So it's Jesus' main priorities he's building into this personal prayer that was punchy and memorable and good enough for his prayer life and what he gave to his followers when they asked. And then secondly, love your neighbor as yourself. It's this, it's this shifting from focusing on giving our attention to God to giving our attention to some of our needs. And, and not just, you notice how it says us, it doesn't say me. It's not saying give me my daily bread, but instead it's saying, give us our daily bread, as if we're loving our neighbor through this prayer. So I want to, um, there's six kind of points here, and uh, we're just going to move through them slowly, and it's just going verse by verse, not the whole section, just six. So it begins with, our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. So this is bringing God to mind, and it's emphasizing this, this idea of God being set apart. It's this holy name, hallowed be thy name. Great is your name. Yeah, Jesus' personal prayer begun with hallowed be your name, Father. And Jesus, as I understand it, understood his mission to be kind of, there's a couple folds to it, but one of the main projects of what he was doing in his life was setting out to restore this name of Yahweh, that Yahweh is a God of who cares about justice, but at the same time, oh man, does he ever mean to 
Lord's mercy. And Jesus, in his life, was setting out to portray and recapture the name of that he's saying is, is holy, it's set apart. And then he's introducing the Father not as this eternal scrutinizer, but as, as like our Father. So he's bringing to mind imagery of Abba, our, literally our Father. So this second line is, your kingdom come, your, your will be done. So the idea here is that Jesus is saying, we've gone east of Eden. Yeah, we're, we're not in Eden anymore. And uh, there's this opportunity for earth and heaven to overlap, where we get to experience a bit more of Eden, despite us not being in it. So Jesus was asking, let heaven, let heaven rain down. And using this language we find in another chapter in Ephesians 1, it's, it's where the present age meets the age to come, and prayer is this opportunity where the two overlap. Or through restoring the name and focusing on heaven coming down. It's, just, it's like this sacred place. So Jesus then does this other shift, and he shifts to four things that, we, that he thinks that he and we need uh, apparently every single day. So the first one is, and give us today our daily bread. What story does that draw to mind um, in the Bible? Give us today our, our daily bread. Meet yeah, needs. yeah, bingo. Meet our needs. Sorry, mercy. Meet our needs. Yeah, meet our needs. Give us, like, give us our daily bread, which is, you know, it's a, it's a challenge to do that. It's coming back to this, this cultivating, like he's saying, a disciple of Jesus needs to be able to cultivate in their minds this, this reality that in some way you're poverty-stricken and you have to be dependent on, on literally being sustained every day, which is a totally foreign concept, and kind of what is a, which is a practical, a practical and accessible way to think about it, is when the early church, when all these people were storming into the Jesus movement, inspired by it, one of the things they were doing was just selling off their properties to people in need, as if the, the community that considers themselves disciples of Jesus a part of what that means is to share your resources when you've had your daily bread. Yeah. It's, it's really a, a counterintuitive approach in our culture. So the, the next line, and this is um, this is like a real loser, I think, in the, whatever that word is. It's, like a heavy hitter. it's a heavy hitter in the mind of Jesus. And it's, you know, he said, give us our daily bread. He gave that one line. This one, he gives two lines in his personal prayer he thinks that every generation should be praying. He said, forgive us our debts as we've also forgiven our debtors. So that was like one of Jesus' main focuses, is that he was trying to create a place where people could genuinely experience a restored relationship with the Father and be forgiven. And in his words, it begins with the Father forgiving our debts so that we can forgive so that's not an invitation to retaliation or to holding a grudge. Instead, it's almost as if forgiveness can be dealt with in ourselves. And that doesn't mean that you know justice doesn't happen and you shouldn't be in the room with that person or that person now isn't a criminal. But it's this reality that Jesus can really afford something for us and how we become people who actually have the capacity to forgive. And in his mind, it begins with our debts. <coughs> 
So finally, it's there's just two left, and it's uh, guidance. So how does that find out? And lead us out of the temptation. What we see in the life of Jesus is that he really embodied this. Like all, all of what we just said, he really embodied. And he he this word this leading lead me not into temptation began to be this thing that he would say in these moments of his life of testing. And we hear this in the, the Garden of Gethsemane where he's saying, Father, take this, like, take this cup away from me. I don't want to, I don't want to be facing this testing and temptation anymore. And then finally, when, when just he doesn't, he doesn't have the cup taken away, he's hung in there. He heads into this next line and deliver us from the evil one. When all the cards are on the table, you've just done everything you can, and you are now like you, you don't you're not really in control. Jesus' final comment was, and Father, don't don't lead us. Don't, don't lead us to the evil one. Deliver us from the evil one. So, uh, thank you for sticking through that. Guys, it's a little dense. So, uh, Dallas Willard. He's kind of, a, he's a, kind of a familiar Christian name. He's, he's not alive any longer. But I love how he spoke about his morning routine. And he said there was, there was always these two pieces to it. First off was the Lord's Prayer. That he also has like this man in his 80s, when I heard him say this, he said that the Lord's Prayer was this essential piece to what he called this quiet time. And he knew that the Lord's Prayer did something in the mind of the disciple where it cultivated, it cultivated the mind of Christ. And he's this man doing this in his 80s. And he said, sitting right alongside it was Psalm 23, which is all about like God bringing us in pastures and beside waters. He said the idea of his quiet time was that it wasn't just a quiet time, but it was a quiet time that extended into his day. So when I uh, when I think about my own journey with with prayer, I think I've come from lots of immature places with prayer, like where I just really didn't know what I'm doing, what I was doing, and, and by no means uh, have I like massively, you know, leaped in maturity or, or something. But I, my first experience with prayer was really this, this time of less of petitions, but it was learning to be introspective. Like, whoa, prayer actually affords this time of silence where I get to consider my motives. And when I was 19, that was full-on revolutionary. I had no habits like that that made me introspective. And then it kind of shifted into uh, listening, which I, I wouldn't have been able to do normally, but I kind of was provided some tools of how in the world do you match introspection with also listening to God where you're moving uh, in in relationship to God where you're actively being able to repent and believe and be encouraged and listen to God. So kind of phase one, phase two, and then phase three, it's been it's been a little bit different than those two, but it's definitely built on it. And it's this reality of what prayer feels like to me lately. And it's much more of, it's, it, yes, it's introspection, and yes, it's listening, but I would say that I'm far more after this experience of where I think like a genuine exchange with God has happened. And it's not necessarily to give me like the, the feel good, but instead, like that was, that was really what I was after at the beginning, like I want this prayer time to make me feel good. But instead it's shifted to one of partnership, where like I want a genuine connection with I love how Richard J. Foster talks about prayer, and we have this quote up there. 
and again, you guys, if you want, you can read from there, or you can just hear a very soothing voice from <laughs> <laughs> uh, So our problem, Richard Foster, do you guys know who that is? He, he's wrote some uh, pretty like notable books, Christian books. Um, oh, what was, what was the, what's the biggest one? Celebration of Discipline. Celebration of Discipline, yeah. So this is not the Celebration of Discipline, but it's another, another good one. And this is what he said. Our problem is that we assume that prayer is something to master the way we master algebra or auto mechanics. As if I thought I was mature understanding. That puts us in the on-top position where we're competent and in control. But when praying, we come underneath where we calmly and deliberately surrender control and become incompetent. What, like, grilling words, eh? Become incompetent through prayer. Simple prayer involves ordinary people bringing ordinary concerns to a loving and compassionate Father. How did Jesus say to start his prayer? It's bringing to mind who our Father is. Literally saying our Father. There's no pretense in simple prayer. We don't pretend to be more holy or more pure or more saintly than we actually are. And we don't try to conceal our conflicting and contradictory motives from God or ourselves. And in this posture, we pour out our heart to God who's greater than our heart who is greater than our heart and who knows all things. And he's referencing, I didn't put it up there, but he's referencing first, or first John 3.20. So we are, we're just about at the tail end, and I want to just finish with a story and then a, kind of like a, a practical invitation. So this story is uh, from a book called Abba's Child, which is like a pretty fitting title for what we're talking about today, which is so much about focusing on who God is. And I, I read this story kind of early on in, in my Christian journey, and it's still one that's gripping. So uh, I'll read it to you guys. It's that one. Is that right in there? Once I related the story of an old man dying of cancer, the old man's daughter had asked the local priest to come and pray with her father. When the priest arrived, he found the man laying in bed with his head propped up on two pillows and an empty chair beside his bed. The priest assumed that the old fellow had been informed of this visit. I guess you were expecting me, he said. No. Who are you? I'm the new associate at the parish, the priest replied. When I saw the empty chair, I figured you knew I was going to show up. Oh, yeah, that chair, said the bedridden man. Would you mind closing the door? Puzzled, the priest shut the door. I've never told anyone this, not even my daughter, said the man, but all my life I've never known how to pray. At Sunday Mass, I used to hear the pastor talk about prayer, but it always went right over my head. Finally, I said to him one day, in sheer frustration, I get nothing out of your homilies on prayer. Here, says the pastor, reaching into the bottom drawer of his desk, Read this book by Hans Urs von Balthasar. He's a Swiss theologian. It's the best book on contemplative prayer in the 20th century. Well, Father, says the man, I took that book home and tried to read it, but in the first three pages I had to look up 12 words in the dictionary. <laughs> I gave the book back to my pastor, 
thanked him under my breath and spoke for nothing. I abandoned any attempt at prayer, he continued, until one day about four years ago, my best friend said to me, Joe, prayer is just as simple. Prayer is just a simple matter of having a conversation with Jesus. Here's what I suggest. Sit down on a chair, place an empty chair in front of you, and in faith see Jesus on the chair. It's not spooky because he promised, I'll be with you all the days. Then just speak to him and listen to him in the same way you're doing with me right now. <coughs> so bothering, tried it. And I liked it so much that I did it a couple hours every day. I'm careful though. If my daughter saw me talking to an empty chair, she'd either have a nervous breakdown or send me to a funny farm. <laughs> She's like, that's a, that's, this book's a little old. <laughs> <laughs> the priest was deeply moved by the story and encouraged the old guy to continue on the journey. Then he prayed with him, anointed him with oil, and returned to the rectory. Two nights later, the daughter called to tell the priest that her daddy had died that afternoon. Did he seem to die in peace, he asked. Yes, when I left the house at two o'clock, he called me over to his bedside told me one of his corny jokes and kissed me on the cheek. When I got back from the store an hour later, I found him dead. But there was something strange, Father. In fact, beyond strange, kind of weird. Apparently, just before Daddy died, he leaned over and rested his head on a chair beside his bed. So my hope this morning is that the Lord's Prayer equips us to have options as we pray. Jesus, Jesus really had a dynamic prayer life. But at the same time, with those options, can we, can we also keep this reality that prayer is just as the story described. It's simply a conversation with our, with our Father, whose disposition towards us is compassionate. He wants to engage with our emotions as well. So uh, there's going to be folks heading, heading back into ordinary life, and there's going to be folks like we have that our prayer slot and I just I just invite you to receive this gift that Jesus gave us in the Lord's Prayer. This was his memorable, punchy, condensed down version of what it means to follow Jesus. And I'll just conclude with a prayer. So thanks Jesus that you uh, you see our humanity and we see yours and how you uh, you didn't give us some complicated equation to what it means to pray with you, but instead Prayer 101 was this short list of six lines where we see that we bring the Father to our mind, we recognize who He is, and we recognize the capacity that He has and our lack of capacity. So uh, just pray as we, as we move forward and we're recognizing each of our own individual's lack of capacity. I'm a, I know mine, I know where I need help. Help us to follow this, this pattern of and invite the Father in really ordinary ways where we're, we're imagining him in faith on the chair in front of us. To do this all in your name, Jesus. Amen. Before we go ahead.